Hello and welcome to the Flint Catholic Podcast. My name is Father Tony Smila. And I'm Michael Hasso. And today we're going to be talking about scripture. Um, as I'm sure many of you may have heard by now, um, that this coming year, our bishop, Bishop Boyer, has declared this to be the year of the Bible. So that's going to be starting, um, I believe, the last weekend in November. Yep. Yep. The beginning so, of the liturgical year. Yep. We already have uh, Bishop Boyer's face posted up on our in the inside of the church with the Bible. So we got our good propaganda materials from the diocese. I mean, uh, promotional <laughs> materials from the diocese. We won't share this with them. Definitely not. Um, so anyway, we thought this would be fitting to have a couple of episodes devoted to um, kind of unpacking some of the preliminary things that often don't get talked about in regard to scripture. Like, for instance, as Christians, a lot of times we just assume that the Bible is the inspired word of God, or we we take for granted that we have the canon of scripture, all the different books of the Bible. We take for granted that we know what those are. Um, but early Christians weren't able to do that. Right. I, I mean, I think it's it's safe to assume the Bible is the inspired word of God, but yeah. how did we come to that realization? How do we how do we know that? Um, what makes us confident in that? Yeah, so that's that's just a couple of the things we're going to be talking about today, as well as um, later we'll talk about some of some of the arguments that we often hear from the world as to why Scripture can't be trusted. Um, so where did the Bible come from? I don't know if you've ever wondered that. Maybe you have. Sure, especially when I was younger, I wondered that. I mean, you know, did it fall from the sky? Um, did somebody just decide this is it? Um, how did we get it? Yeah. Yeah, and that's kind of where I was when I was growing up. I actually remember this really vividly um, because, oddly enough, this was like one of the really burning questions on my mind, but that I never really voiced ever. Like, I remember sitting in catechism class and, and just like thinking about God, thinking about scripture, but not really getting it. And I remember that I had this, this sort of image of how we got scripture and it it kind of went something like you know the story of Moses how he how he goes up mount sinai and receives the the 10 commandments on stone tablets i kind of imagine that the whole bible was delivered on stone tablets which i realize would be quite heavy that, that would be very heavy <laughs> yeah yeah so i had this i had this really um really sort of skewed sense of like what scripture was and how it how it came to be and so eventually when I got older into high school and college I think I just kind of wrote it off personally I was like well this can't possibly be true like who who just like wanders up a mountain and like receives a bible and is like oh this must be from God um and so part of it was really starting to unpack and and understand where where that came from. That was very powerful in um, in growing to trust Scripture for me. Yeah, I think for me that that point was when I was able to put the Old Testament in context, just kind of understand what's happening at this place and at this time. Because um, I think for a lot of us, and for me, for a lot of my life, the Old Testament was this mysterious thing. Um, didn't understand what was in it. You know, you'd, if you'd flip to a random page in the Old Testament, you're probably left wondering what in the world is going on. Who is talking? Why are they talking like this? I don't get any of it. And so most of it was so mysterious in its in its quality and, and really what it's talking about. But 
Once I was able to put it in a historical context with the historical people and understanding what's happening and the events around it, and then knowing what each book is talking about and where they're, um, what, what the reference is for anything, that's when I started to understand it and say, oh, now the Old Testament really makes sense. It's not this mysterious, weird thing that you know we're supposed to read as Catholics, but of course we never read them. <laughs> but now I read it all the time because I understand what's going on and I love it. So um, that was a big moment for me, understanding it, putting it in context and seeing, okay, now I understand kind of where it came from and what's what what was happening at the time to cause people to write these things and to and to compile them together. Yeah, and I think I think that word that you said right there, Father Tony, compile. Yes. Because and you may have heard this before, but it's it's so like fundamental to understanding scripture. The Bible isn't a book. It's really a library. Yeah. And actually I believe the word Bible comes from the same word as library, if I'm not mistaken. Probably. And and so it's important to not just put the whole Bible into just one context or one genre or or whatever. This comes from the Bible comes from actually many different authors, but we say that the Holy Spirit is the one author. So the Holy Spirit inspired all of the authors, but there were many authors that wrote the different books. Yeah. And I would say, and it, more important than anything else, I think, is to understand what you said earlier, is the genre. If And I think we get into a lot of trouble interpreting scripture if we get the genre wrong. If we don't understand what kind of literature it is that we're reading in at each moment, then we're really, we, we're really in danger of really screwing up what it actually means. And so understanding, too, that there are many, many different genres within the scriptures itself. You know, we, this Bible starts with mythology yeah, and, and not, you know, literal history, even though it can read like a history book at times. It's not. First 12 chapters are not. And then we get to the story of Abraham and history begins. And so understanding what's what the different types of genres are, are critical to understanding the text of the scripture itself. Yeah, definitely. And I think the other thing, too, is to is to really sort of put on a historical a historical mindset when you when you look at the Bible, because when you think of it from the perspective of the ancients, most of these things didn't start with writing because most people couldn't write. So if somebody was if somebody was looking to share a message, like let's say the Gospels, we'll just start there because most people are most familiar with those. If you're just trying to get out the message of Jesus and who he is, are you going to just write a letter and mail it to people? Probably, Probably not. Yeah. Probably not. I might might send out a TikTok or something. Yeah. Yeah. If they had that, they that's probably how they would have done it. That's right. <laughs> um, so, yeah, a lot of these things started orally and then developed over time. That doesn't mean they didn't exist prior to that. Right. But it just meant that they were in development and they delivered it through word of mouth because they were an oral culture. That's right. So, so anyway, that's, that's key. So whatever we have, whatever we have in writing, we can assume that it's pretty confidently quite a bit older than that. Now, the next thing that I wanted to talk just briefly about, we won't get into the nitty-gritty of this, but how do we know which books belong in the Bible? Ooh, good question. 
I mean, does, didn't we just know from the beginning? This is like when the when the author finished writing it, he says, "Now this belongs in scripture." Yeah, he he, he didn't do that. I don't think so. What? I know it. That was actually, you know, as much as we're joking about it here, that was actually like quite a bit surprising to me <laughs> when I first discovered this. Yeah, and it, honestly, it was also a relief. I was like, "Oh, so this is like." Even though it's the inspired work, word of God, like it still has to be like based on something. It still Correct. has to be based on reason or criteria for discerning. Correct. Um, and so we won't go into all of those in detail. Actually, I do want to make a brief mention of this. If you are interested in finding some of the more some more of the details about this, I would highly recommend checking out Symbolon. Um, great series. You can find it on form.org or, um, or you can also buy the series itself. Mm -hmm. And that's a, they have a great series in there on scripture and, and they talk specifically about all of the criteria. But one of the criteria that was used that is the most important really, um, is the liturgy itself. Mm. So when the early church was discerning what books belonged in the canon of scripture, the most important criteria was what was being used in the liturgy throughout the world. Ooh, I'm interested. Tell me more. Yeah, so this is really kind of interesting, especially when you consider there wasn't a universalized canon. You know, there was just like a lot of things that hadn't been discerned and and sort of fleshed out by the church, right? Um, and so what the church did was they basically corresponded with different churches throughout the known world at that time. And they said, what are you using in your liturgy? And so if it was used in the liturgy, that was one criteria. They had others. So there were, there were other things that were used in liturgy in certain places that were later discerned to be not a part of scripture. Um, but that is the big one. So if you're a, uh... If you're my eighth graders, we just talked about this in class, right? So two of the other criteria would be uh, apostolic origins. So they had to be written by, at least for the New Testament, right? They had to be written by someone near or an apostle themselves or near to an apostle. They had to have orthodox content, right? Had to be in line with everything else that has been taught about the church, right? You can't contradict the teachings of the church in the writing. So it had to be within everything else that was being taught. So those are two of the other criteria. Uh, so you better have known that, eighth graders. <laughs> we just talked about it. Yeah. So these are these are really important criteria um, to just keep in mind that, like, you know, it wasn't just like the Pope one day just decided, oh, these are the books. Right. This was something that was discerned and then... Canonized and, and and let's be frank, fought about. Yeah, and they, fought about. There was a lot of fighting over yeah. this. Yeah, like a lot of people don't realize, for instance, that like the Book of Revelation, there were actually a number of saints that were very skeptical, right, as to whether or not the Book of Revelation was the inspired Word of God. Like a lot. Yep. <laughs> Which I'm glad they lost because that's one of my favorite books in the New Testament. Yeah, yeah, and I mean. We could go on and on. There were there were a, a number of different battles about this because if you go back even further, even further than the New Testament, 
it's like prior to the Catholic Church discerning the canon of Scripture, there was no, um, there was no definitive Old Testament. Like Jews didn't have a, um, didn't have a set canon of Scripture. Sure, different groups of Jews used different um, canons. They were mostly the same, but certainly some yeah. differences amongst them, for sure. Yeah, and so, like, the only point I'm making is that even that needed to be discerned. Yep. yep. Even for them, as, as many of them being faithful Jews. Um, and so, along those same lines, I wanted to just give a brief mention to, to the Deuterocanon. Okay, that's a big word. Yeah, it is. And basically, all it means is is just the later canon. It was a canon that was discerned later. Um, And so what that means for us as Catholics is that there's seven books that we have in Catholic Bibles that aren't in Protestant Bibles. Uh Uh-huh. And so so anyway, this isn't... So you're saying our book's bigger. Yes. Our Bible's bigger. Yes, it is. (laughs) Yeah, and... I, I had always wondered that, like I had heard that Catholic Bibles were different from Protestant Bibles, but I didn't mm-hmm. really know how. And it kind of made me, as a Catholic, much more skeptical. Like when I was reading a Bible, I was like, well, I don't know if this is a Catholic Bible. Mm-hmm. Um, but truthfully, everything that's in Protestant Bibles is in Catholic Bibles. We just have seven additional books. That's right. Yep. Um. But that being said, it is still important as a Catholic that we are using Catholic Bibles so that we're reading from the full canon of Scripture. Yeah. Bring get the full Bible. Yeah, That's yeah. Right. Don't don't get the abridged version. That's correct. So they so we can reasonably say then that the Protestants then discern differently than Catholics. That's why their Bible size is different. They discerned that um, several books were not scriptural, whereas Catholics would have had have discerned that those books are scriptural. So there's a number in the New Testament, and there's a few in the Old Testament as well. So next, I wanted to talk about inspiration. What exactly does that mean? Um, so the key here, when we say inspired, the key here is who inspired it, and that's the Holy Spirit. So it's I mentioned this earlier in the podcast, but basically the idea is that although there are many authors to Scripture— in, in one sense, like there's many people who authored the different books of Scripture, I should say. Um, there's only one principal author, and that's the Holy Spirit who inspired all of them. And so um, Dave Verbum, which is one of the documents of Vatican II, does a really good job of laying this out. Um, and it's in paragraph 11, and basically what Dave, Dave Verbum says is that the authors, like the human authors of Scripture, consented to writing what the Holy Spirit wanted them to write and nothing more and nothing less. Could I have gotten the Holy Spirit to do that during my term papers in school? It would have been nice. It would have been nice. (laughs) Just exactly what my professor wants, nothing more, nothing less. Yeah. I don't know how you would have done convincing him that it was the Holy Spirit. (laughs) Didn't have to, right? Holy Spirit knows. Yeah. Yeah, as long as the Holy Spirit knows. That's I passed, I mean. so I guess maybe that worked. Yeah. Yeah. That must have been the Holy Spirit then, right? Definitely. Not me. <laughs> so anyway, 
it's important to keep in mind what we mean by inspiration, and that's first of all, the Holy Spirit. Um, and there's this idea that really runs throughout a lot of the church documents on Scripture, and it's what's known in theology as the incarnational principle. All that means, um, and this is a really I'd say a really easy way to understand what we mean by the inspiration of scripture. And it's basically like you've probably heard the heard people say um, the verse from scripture before that Jesus, that God in Jesus became like to us in all things but sin. So in the same way, Pope Leo the 13th and others have said that the word of God as in like God's words became like to human speech in all things but error. Ooh, I like that. Yeah. Yeah, and so there is there is this sort of analogy mm-hmm. between the word of God being made flesh and the word of God becoming like human words in mm-hmm. scripture. Nice. I like it. So that was kind of our crash course on inspiration and what that is. Next, we're going to be talking about the interpretation of Scripture. So I think this is a big one, particularly for Catholics. Yeah. Because I don't know about you, Father Tony, but for me, when I was growing up, I definitely had this impression of like, I can't say much about Scripture or I can't say much about my faith because I don't know it that well. I don't know it as well as my priest or whoever. And so I'm better off not saying anything so that I either don't embarrass myself or so I don't lead somebody into error. Sure. I mean, isn't that the job of one of those people in the offices in the Vatican, right? They're, they they do all that interpretation of Scripture for me, right? Yeah. And no. I believe they call... No? Wait, no? <laughs> no? I know. It's shocking. Oh, no. But actually, we as the church, like the whole body of Christ, we all have a role in interpreting scripture. Mm-hmm. And so what we're going to do now is kind of lay out what what those roles are. Um, so the first interpreter of scripture um, is actually not the bishops, but the Holy Spirit. Yes. The Holy Spirit is the first interpreter of scripture. Well, sure, it makes sense because the Holy Spirit inspired the text itself. Yeah, exactly. And so as it says in the Catechism, paragraph 111, Sacred scripture must be read and interpreted in the light of the same spirit by whom it was written. That makes sense. Yeah. Meaning, like, you literally can't interpret scripture without the Holy Spirit, without welcoming the Holy Spirit in. Um, and then next, after the Holy Spirit, then we have the teaching office of the church, what we call the magisterium. That's right. That's right. That, those are those offices in the Vatican that they try and, you know, come up with fancy language for everything. Yeah. And so it's it's the magisterium's role, or one of, one of their roles, to provide definitive clarity on Scripture where it's needed. So they don't define all of Scripture, just to be clear. Like, they, you know, the Church hasn't defined every verse in the Bible, and this is definitively what it means. And, and I don't think it's even possible to do that. Yeah, exactly. And they know that. And so really the magisterium's role isn't so much to like, um, so much to like tell us what to think about scripture. It's more to provide boundaries. Yeah. So that we know, okay, 
well, this interpretation, that's where we've gone sort of out of bounds. Mm -hmm. They're more like the referee. Sure. Yeah. And in another sense, the foundation to um, the rest to to us um, interpreting scripture as well. If you, you know, do an interpretation outside of the foundation, you're going to fall over. So I like to think of it more as a foundation. If I'm in line with the magisterium, then I'm doing well. Yeah. Yeah. And that, that should really be our basis and our standard. And that's kind of, that's what ensures authentic um, development yeah. in, the under, in our understanding of scripture as a church. Mm-hmm. Um, so next up we have all Christians. So meaning lay people, every, every person listening to this has a role in interpreting and defending scripture. And this actually comes from Providentissimus Deus. That's another big word. What does that mean? So basically, it just means the providence of God. Um, and it was an encyclical written by um, Pope Leo Thirteenth. And basically, what he says specifically in there is that all Christians have a role in defending Scripture. So he he's specifically referring to people in areas other than theology. So if you don't study theology, you still have a role in defending scripture. What? I know. It's it's it really is crazy. And what was even more shocking to me is when I first read this, I was like, wow, the, like that's really bold words. Mm-hmm. Especially for, you know, the late 1800s. So all the whole church has a role in defending scripture. And so he he specifically lays out, like, let's say you're a scientist. There's things that you can do in your research to defend scripture. Or one great example, um, a local a local guy who's a parishioner here in Flint, um, who's a history professor at the University of Michigan. I actually have read a couple of his articles who ha- that have been about the history of the Catholic Church, um, specifically here in Flint. Interesting. And so, so there's this way in which, like, wherever we're at in life, we have, we have a role in this. And there's great examples of this, um, even in our local community. So it's important for all of us to then be reading Scripture all the time. Yeah, definitely. I would agree. It's necessary. Um, and then this is a quote from the Council of Trent. And it says, in, the, in things of faith and morals belonging to the building up of Christian doctrine, that is to be considered the true sense of Holy Scripture, which has been held and is held by our Holy Mother, the Church, whose place it is to judge of the true sense and interpretation of the Scriptures. Therefore, it is permitted to no one to interpret Holy Scripture against such sense, or also against the unanimous agreement of the Father's. And so what this is saying is first that, yes, the church has the definitive interpretation of Scripture, and we're to use this, like we were saying before, in order to sort of build up our understanding of Scripture, to know with surety that we are following Jesus and not just ourselves or, or some other human person other than Jesus. And then going on, um, it says, 
By this most wise decree, the church by no means prevents or restrains the pursuit of biblical science, but rather protects it from error and largely assists its real progress. A wide field is still left open to to the private student. In those passages of Holy Scripture which have not yet received a certain and definitive interpretation, such labors may prepare for and bring maturity and judgment to the church. Oh, that's kind of cool. Yeah. So there's real latitude for lay people, for all of us, the Christian faithful, to um, have an interpretation of Scripture, to really dive in and say, okay, what's the Lord really trying to say here? Yeah. And truthfully, it's the saints who really give the the, you know, uh, not the definitive interpretation in the way that the magisterium does, but they really do lend to the interpreting of Scripture. Sure, they they do this principle very well. Yeah, because they're living it out. They're not they're not just speculating, although many of them did study theology, but they were living out the gospel. Yep, and that gave Scripture its interpretation in many senses. So now, finally, we want to get to a couple of common arguments. Yes. Um. You've maybe heard some of these, or if you haven't before, you probably will eventually. Yep. Um, these are kind of the what we think are the biggest arguments against Scripture, and so we're just going to kind of talk through them. Sure. Sounds good. So the first one of these is the Bible is unreliable or unreasonable. Ooh, I like this one. So I, I get this one a lot. In fact, I've already gotten this by my eighth graders. How do we know these documents weren't altered, right? How do we know that the documents we have today, the scripture that we have today, is the scripture that was actually inspired by God and not just changed to fit what we want them to say? And I think my argument against that is the Bible, there are... Um, so if uh, you look at the New York bestsellers list, right? New York Times bestsellers list, um, and you see the, the listings, there's actually a book that's taken off the list, and it's the Bible. The, the, because the Bible would be number one every single week of the existence of the New York Times bestsellers list. And so they just literally took it off and said, well, it's assumed that the Bible is number one. And then we'll just start the list really from number two. So it's the most copied book in the history of the world. And, and that isn't just true in our day, but it's been true for all time. And so we have so many different copies of the scriptures that if there was that point and altering that would have happened, we would see it happening in real time. We would have the copies and we would know that they've been altered. We have, we have copies of the scripture that goes back, you know, a couple thousand years. So like right from really close to the, the origins of them, we got the Dead Sea Scrolls, which really were a huge um, development in our understanding of the scriptures and seeing how close they were to what we have today, and that the scriptures really haven't been altered at all. And we'll we'll definitely see um, errors by copyists that that you know move on through time. But then when you compare them against other texts in that day, we can see that oh, there was an error here. This is probably the original word. This is probably where the error happened because there are so many copies of this text and they're in so many different places and the copies happen in so many different places. We can compare them against each other. And that's what a lot of current translations do is they compare the texts against each other to see, okay, this is probably 
the most original text. This is probably some of the the altars based on just human error because we error a lot. Um, and so being able to compare those has been very helpful and um, and that's how we can be fairly confident in the text that we have. Yeah, and truthfully, it goes back even further than the New Testament. A lot of people don't think beyond this just because like, you know, 2,000 years ago seems like a really long time ago. Oh, yeah. But we actually have frag- fragments of Scripture that go back as far as 1700 BC. Yeah. And incredible. so just to give you a frame of reference, Jesus was 2,000 years prior to us. Abraham, from, you know, Genesis, he was 2,000 years prior to Jesus. So we have fragments of Scripture that date back almost to the time of Abraham. It's pretty incredible. And so we can look at these fragments. Um, some of them aren't, aren't very big. It, it kind of depends what you're looking at. Mm-hmm. But we can see even from these fragments that they are substantially exactly what we still have today yeah. in our Bibles. Yep. Um, so actually, according to most scholars, at least that would admit such things, the Bible is by far the most reliable ancient document I would agree. in existence. I would agree. Now, there is one area in which actually there have been some edits, and we, we can kind of see them, and we consider the edits actually part of Scripture. So we talked about the oral tradition, right? And especially this, this really pertains to the Old Testament. Talking about the oral tradition, a lot of the books that we have in the Old Testament reached their final form during the Babylonian exile. And so what we see is um, it looks like there was an original text to it, and then editors really kind of spruced up the the works, and then found they found their final form during that Babylonian exile, which is an important moment in the history of Israel, and it's really a point in which um, we come to understand the entirety of the Old Testament. I think one of the linchpins, the, the hinge moment in the Old Testament, is the Babylonian exile. You have everything that happened before, and then everything that happens after is completely different after the exile. And so we see a people without their temple, without their presence of God here on earth, and a people wondering, has God abandoned them? And so what do they do? They turn to the scripture, they turn to their history, they turn to the things that they've been able to hold on to for so long, and they, 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 they really um, write them down, polish them up, and say, this is who we are as a people, so we don't forget, so we don't become Babylonians, we retain our Jewish identity, our, our Israeli identity, and that's what they had to do during the exile. And so we see scripture then becoming refined, and their texts Becoming and, and that's really the first time they become really codified as well. Um, we see a, a first listing of books in order that these are our documents, these are our scripture um, that makes us who we are. So even that moment, you know, a lot of people can say, well, that's just, um, you know, they've altered the text beyond what they were. But I would argue that's God using that moment and different authors to refine what he wants to say to his people. And so even that, I think we can trust as inspired by God. Yeah. So next we have... Oh, sorry. Did you want to talk about two? Nope. Or I mean B. I don't think so. I think it's good. Okay. Um, Number two, the Bible is biased and full of contradictions. Ooh. 
this is this is something I, I hear a lot too. The Bible is biased, full of contradictions. You know, you've got this whole idea of the Old Testament God being different than the New Testament God, and it's all just it's just all pooey because of that. And it's totally not true. So, um, one, there are no contradictions in the Bible. Let me repeat that. There are no contradictions in the Bible. What look like contradictions, I think, is just because there's a poor interpretation of Scripture happening in these places. So as we said earlier, it's important to know what is the genre that we're reading in in any given moment. It's so important to understand what the genre is to understand um, what's being said here. So we see the creation stories, right? There are two creation stories in Genesis. Do they contradict each other? It kind of looks like it, right? Can you have two creation stories? No. What's the point of it? The point is not to show us this is how we were created, like literally physically. doesn't matter. Like that's not the point of the story. The point of the story is to show us this is why God created us. This is what he created us for. This is our purpose. God created us out of love for love. And then especially in in the second creation story, we see the fall of man. And so God created us good. Why does sin exist? Why do bad things happen? And so we see this truth trying to be told through the story, the narrative of the creation stories, Adam and Eve in Genesis. Was there an actual person, two people named Adam and Eve? Probably not. Did this happen exactly the way it's, it's... it's written? Probably not, but that's not the point. Right? That's what a mythology is. It's a story that tells a deeper truth. Who are we? What were, what were we created for? And so when we see people complain about the contradictions in the, in the Bible, often it's because they're not looking at the genre. And typically it's because they're looking at the whole Bible as literal instead of what it what it is is just it's it's a whole bunch of different texts all put together you have law you have history you have poetry you have lyrics and song you've got all kinds of things mythology all of these things put together and if you're not conscious about what the genre is then you're in trouble of uh, misinterpreting the scripture so yes we can trust what the Bible says, because there are no contradictions. Um, so one thing that can really help, because that can be very intimidating, right? Like, I don't know what what this, what the genre of the book is. It doesn't exactly say at the top of the, the page, this is what genre you're in. What can be really helpful is um, get a Bible with a really good introduction. And I think my favorite for that is called the Didache Bible. They've got really, really good introductions at the beginning of each book. And read the introduction to the book and see, okay, where is this book coming from? What's being told here? What kind of genre is it? Who's the audience? And it's got all these things listed out. And um, so to be able to to read scripture based on on that and help let the introductions help you, guide you through the book to know what you're reading is, is very helpful. Yeah, those are so useful. I can say that as somebody who started reading scripture as an adult, having those sorts of introductions and getting to getting to understand the genre and and just the greater context not only not only of scripture itself but like where the author was coming from yeah 
when I celebrate Mass um, on Sundays, I'll preview both of the readings, the first and the second reading, and I'll give a little bit of that context because it's important for us to, to know, you know, how many times have we been at Mass and, and heard the first reading? We're like, where did that come from? What in the world is going on here? I have no idea. So I try and provide that. And, you know, a lot of people are like, well, thank you, Father Tony, for doing that. I'm like, well, I do that because I oftentimes needed it myself. I would look at the first reading, preparing the homily, and I'm like, I have no idea what's going on here. Let me let me dive into that. And so I wanted to, I always want to share that with the people at mass as well. So it's it's really important to do that. Yeah, and it and it's so Catholic too. Um, it actually comes from what Saint Thomas Aquinas has to say about how we as Catholics interpret Scripture. And he says that first of all, we need to be concerned with the literal sense of Scripture, meaning um, meaning that we need to first of all be concerned with what does the author intend to say yes so before we get into like i i see this all the time like when when i'll do like lexio divina with like college students and stuff like this people want to jump right into like oh this is what i think god's saying to me and i'm like no we have to start first with what is the author saying yeah what do they actually intend the literal sense and then you can go into like the other senses That's right. of Scripture. Right, because Scripture is incredibly layered. There's so many layers to Scripture. And and to get to a deeper level, you got to start at those surface level layers first and then work your way down into those other layers. And, and, I, and those surface level layers really help us to dive deeper into it and making sure we don't move into error at that point. Yeah, so important. Yep. So, Father Tony, how about faith and science? You, like we hear a lot of a yes. lot of discussion about this today. Um, I know I've personally known people who have left the church because you know they figured you know they're they're my they're based on reason. They want to only follow what is reasonably true, and they think right. that faith and and science sort of contradict each other. Sure, and if you look at the way they define those terms. It, they would have to contradict each other because faith, um, in their minds, is oh, use, is not using reason to come to a conclusion, whereas reason is using reason to come to a conclusion, or science is using reason to come to a conclusion, and and I reject that premise on its on its face. Um, faith requires the use of reason. Faith and reason go together, just as faith and science go together, and it would make sense too because if we believe that God created all of this, He created science as well, and so. It can't contradict anything that that the scripture says. Tr- scripture is not going to contradict reality because scripture is the the manual for reality. So it can't contradict reality. If if your interpretation of scripture does contradict reality, well, then I would argue you have a bad interpretation of scripture. So the big one we hear all the time, right? Is and especially we we see, um, you know, we go back to the creation story and we hear evolution and and creationism are opposed to each other, and they can't exist together at the same time. And and if you believe in creationism over evolution, well, then you just, you better walk away from your faith. And I I reject that premise as well, because you can believe in the theory of evolution and that God created everything in the Bible. He created everything. um, Everything that the Bible says is true. You can hold those true at the same time that the Bible is true, and that evolution is true. How? Um, In my mind, you know, it's perfectly reasonable that God used evolution to bring us to where we are today. And as I said earlier, the creation stories are mythology, so it's not—we don't have to believe that 
you know, the world was created in seven 24-hour periods. We don't have to believe that. That's not the point of the story. The point of the story is why were we created and what were we created for? What was our purpose? And that can still be true along with evolution. Yeah, that's so important. And I think another key factor in understanding not only scripture, but like um, the teaching of the church in general is what I mentioned before in the um, in that quote from the Council of Trent, where it says the church has the authority to basically say, ba- sorry, I'll get back to that. So what it what I said when I quoted the Council of Trent earlier, it says in things of faith and morals. So the church has the role in defining things related to faith and morals. The church does not define things scientifically. Right. The church is never going to define Newton's law. Right. Correct. As true or false or anything. So um, it's just important to remember those things. Science may come up in mm-hmm. things that the church says, but they can. that should never be like an argument of like, oh, well, you know, Pope Francis said global warming is is real or whatever. Um, that's not his role. Right. Like he can talk about it, but it, you know, he doesn't have that same authority right. in that realm. Now, off air, we talked about the difference between um, evolution and evolutionism. Can you mention that real quick? Because I think that's a really important distinction in this conversation. Yeah, that's that's really key. So I actually get this from the UCAT. So you can check out the section of the UCAT on this. Um, but basically, in the UCAT, it, it distinguishes between evolution and evolutionism. Evolution is the idea that things develop over time, which is, as Father Tony said, not at all contradicting scripture or our faith. But evolutionism is the idea that all of this happens by random, at, like at random. Um, it's just atoms hitting atoms. There's no reason um, or no divine, divine providence behind any of this. And, and that's really the big difference is who's the who, who's in charge of all of this, right? Is God in charge of the way evolution goes or is random chance in charge? And, you know, I don't think it's reasonable even to think random chance brought us to where we are today. I don't think that's even a reasonable claim. I think it's more reasonable to believe that God brought us to this place through evolution than to say that random chance did that. Yeah. So that's the big difference. Is God there or not? Yeah. So that's all we have for you guys today. So we'll see you guys next time. Be sure to leave us a review and subscribe. Actually, before we go, I'd like to do one more thing, and I'll probably swap the order of this. So what we really want to do is encourage you to read the scriptures, to really take this year and dive into the scriptures. And so there's a lot of different ways to do it. One of my favorite ways to do it, and I think one of the best ways to do it, is to um, get a Bible reading plan. And so you can print them off. There's a lot of different places online um, to print them off and just day by day check off, read scripture every single day, check it off and go through the scriptures. The best one is the the um, Catholic commentary on sacred scripture. Um, so that's out of Sacred Heart Major Seminary in Detroit. If you go to their website, and I'll have that posted in the show notes, they've got a, a great um, Bible reading plan. And I think that's one of my favorites. I encourage you to, to use that. 
or any other one that you find helpful, but read scripture this year. Let's, let's as a church, um, go through the Bible in a year. It's not that hard to go through the entire Bible in a year. I've done it several times at this point. And, uh, and let's, let's read the Bible together and, and let God speak to us through the scriptures this year. Yeah, and actually, the the Diocese of Lansing was one step ahead of you, Father Tony. Uh-oh. Um, they're actually putting out a Bible reading plan Ooh, that good. you can participate in. So what you can do to participate, I don't have the details in front of me right now, but if you go to the Diocese of Lansing website, what you can do is subscribe either via email or text message, and what they'll do is they'll send you the readings each day, um, as well as, I believe... So what it'll be is like a chapter a day, and it's going to be based on the liturgical calendar. So it'll follow the lectionary. Um, nice. Yeah, I hadn't heard that, so I'm glad you mentioned that. Yeah. So start starting on the first Sunday of Advent, November 29th, he will text you a daily reading from the Holy Bible for you to read and meditate upon. Over the course of the year, both you and Bishop Boyer will get through the whole of salvation history. Just text BYOB to 84576. That is B-Y-O-B. I'm assuming that means bring your own Bible. Yes. <laughs> Actually, it, Eight, four, it stands five. for Bishop's Year of the Bible. <laughs> Just wow. <laughs> Bishop's Year of the Bibles. There we go. Yeah. I'm glad I'm glad somebody's reading the, the Bishop's Notes. Yeah. B-Y-O-B, Bishop's Year of the Bible, 284576. And I'll be doing that as soon as we stop recording. Okay. Well, be sure to subscribe, guys, both to the podcast and to the Year of the Bible. Um, and by the way, even if you're not from the Diocese of Lansing, you are welcome to subscribe to that, and you can participate in these readings in the Year of the Bible. No, you're, you're actually not. He's lying. You can't participate. got to be in the diocese. <laughs> Just kidding. All right, see you next week. Okay, see you guys.